You're listening to Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. After lawsuits and weeks of criticism for the widespread delays in the mail, Postmaster General Louis DeJoy is facing more problems. The House Oversight Committee is launching an investigation into whether DeJoy pressured employees at his former business to contribute to Republican candidates and then reimburse them with company funds in the guise of bonuses in violation of campaign finance laws. The Washington Post reported that five employees of DeJoy's former North Carolina company, New Breed Logistics, said they were urged by DeJoy's aides or by DeJoy himself to write checks to Republicans and attend fundraisers at his mansion, later to be reimbursed in bonuses. My guest is Meredith McGeehee, the executive director of Issue 1, which advocates for stronger campaign finance laws. Merit, the basic scheme alleged here, hiding where donations come from by having employees make them and then reimbursing them, is that considered illegal? Well, it's one of the bedrocks of financial and campaign finance disclosure, that the purpose of having it is, you know, the true source of the money. And so this notion of giving in the name of another has been something that has been illegal since the 1970s in the campaign finance context. But it's often a problem when you have disclosure rules. People attempt to evade disclosure rules. I kind of describe the situation where giving in the name of another, as this is often referred to, is one of the few places where both campaign finance law is clear, and it actually has, unlike many other portions of law, been enforced robustly over the years. So there's a, a strong record of enforcement precisely on this question. It doesn't get into all the other questions of dark money, what is coordination, all these other you know places where they've been managed to make it fairly murky. This is a clear black line. So then if DeJoy was prosecuted for this, it would be a pretty straightforward case? Well, you have to show the facts, obviously, but they've had many instances of people trying to hide some of the giving in the name of another through bonuses, through family members. There has been a record of many people who have tried to go down this path, and the law and the record here is that if you have the facts and it can show what happened, then you don't really have much of an excuse for it. Companies can contribute through PACs. But what DeJoy did here was reimbursing employees with company money. Is that wrong? Well, there's a few factors here to consider. So let's take your normal political action committee. And this could be whether it is a corporate PAC or a union PAC. But especially corporate PACs, the way they generally work is that the donations to that PAC by law has to be voluntary. That's by law. It cannot be compulsory. Second. Most executives, and this is usually from, you know, employees of a corporation, they get a slip in their paycheck that says, now is the time for you to make your contribution to our PAC, and then it is up to an individual to decide whether to do that. And there might be a point at which you have a whole meeting, and people are sitting around in a room, and one of the people, usually the general counsel or someone who runs the PAC gets up and says, we want to make sure your voice is heard in Washington. Make sure you make your PAC contribution. You know, this is going to be really important for our company. All those happen regularly and are permitted by law. There can even be some part where 
somebody turns to you if you're a high level executive and says, hey, have you made your PAC contribution this year? And you could, you know, certainly feel some pressure, even though it's supposed to be voluntary, you could certainly conceivably feel pressure to make that contribution to show that you want to rise in the company. All those things happen on a regular basis. So does it depend on how much pressure, whether the employee feels like he or she might be losing their job? In this case, apparently there were emails were sent that invited employees to fundraisers. There were follow-up calls and visits to employees' desks. So there's the line between, okay, at what point does something that's supposed to be voluntary become compulsory, right? You would have to look at the set of facts to determine whether that occurred, something that was supposed to be voluntary. Hey, if you want to get ahead in this company, you'll know what you'll do, right? Then you've crossed into a line. But that's, I'm just drawing that picture because I think it's important to understand that that kind of happens on a regular basis every day. Whereas the line here, I think, sounds like, according to the stories that come out, it's one thing for someone to say, hey, if you're a good company employee, you'll give to the PAC. It's a far, far different thing to say, hey, you make your contribution and I'll make sure, you know, that it gets covered. Or I'll get it cover it and any taxes based on the on the bonus. Or why don't you have your wife do it and I'll make sure that it gets covered. You've crossed the Rubicon on legality when you start getting into the world of, you know, and I'll make sure it, it gets covered. There's a separate question of whether or not it's been voluntary based on the pressure. That's one question. There's a very different question about whether or not any contribution was then covered financially. I suppose a close investigation of the books would absolutely show whether or not there was a reimbursement of the employee contributions dollar for dollar. Yes, and you know, it's very interesting. When you look at some of the past cases, there was one involving a fiesta ball back many years ago. And uh, it almost sounds like a repeat of many of the instances where the ex-CEO of the uh, Fiesta Bowl actually pleaded guilty in connection with this, this kind of, um, you know, evasion and donation in, in the name of another. So, as I say, there's kind of a long record of where people have tried to game this because They want to get the political credit, but they end up getting tripped up. And in some cases, in that case, there were not only fines, actually somebody actually went to jail, which is pretty unusual. So, yeah, you have to look at when, what was the, between the donations and any uh, reimbursements that uh, that occurred. Nowadays, we have email trails. What was the understanding? All that comes into the mix as, as part of the fact case that would be looked at. How often does this go on across the country? Because this would not have been discovered unless he had become postmaster general and there was all this investigation into his past. Unfortunately, these straw donors, or they, as they say, contributions in the name of another, are strictly prohibited. But we first have a federal election commission that currently does not even have a quorum. Even when they do, they're very weak. And many times... Uh, you know, their investigative capacity is quite limited. It only comes, cases only come to their attention like this if there's really just been either a press report or there's been a whistleblower. So it's kind of hard to say how often it occurs. Usually if you have a decent general counsel, part of their job is 
to make sure you don't do something like this, which is kind of one of the, it's easy to do, but it's, it should be easy to know where the line is. And, uh, you know, to me, this is a failure of whoever his campaign finance and company lawyers were to make sure that they didn't cross what is a pretty clear line. As I say, there's a lot of murky lines when it comes to campaign finance, and this isn't one of them. DeJoy said that he wasn't aware that any employees felt pressured. Right. There's a difference between feeling pressured and getting reimbursed. The statute of limitations seems to have run in this case. So he probably won't be prosecuted federally, but apparently North Carolina, he could be prosecuted under North Carolina laws? Yes. Uh, in fact, the common cause I just saw on the, on the news wire uh, had just filed a complaint in North Carolina. So that uh, has been brought to uh, the attention in North Carolina. So the way I understand it, North Carolina does not have a statute of limitations, right. unlike federal law, which is five years. So that's why they filed that complaint, calling for an investigation of the straw donor scheme, because the company was uh, in High Point, North Carolina, and New Breed Logistics uh, would fall under North Carolina law. Does the federal government, outside of the FEC, do they often bring prosecutions for campaign finance violations? Well, there's two ways that um, these investigations go. So the Federal Election Commission can uh, conduct an investigation and decide their administrative fines. Or if they believe that there has been a criminal violation, usually willful and knowing, then they get referred to the Justice Department. And there is a public integrity section that would then, uh, you know, take that case on and do the investigation and bring any, any you know, lawsuit against those folks. So uh, the, the Federal Election Commission does not have the ability under current law to adjudicate any criminal, willful, and knowing violation. That all falls to the DOJ. And the House Democrats, the Oversight Committee, has launched an investigation into this not only for the campaign finance, but also for the fact that he may have committed perjury the last time he mm-hmm. testified. Seems as if, you know, he gave sort of a non-denial denial when he, when he testified that in perjury, would perjury be difficult to get him on? Oh, you know, that's always a very difficult one. And obviously, this is operating in a political arena. So, uh, you know, and the people that would have to bring those cases, that case in a criminal court of law, again, would be the Department of Justice. And this Department of Justice does not seem so inclined. So, you know, it's out there. Uh, Lying to Congress should be a very serious thing to do. Some people have, in fact, you know, been found guilty and end up either with with criminal sentences. But I think, look, I'm going to say a word a little bit, and I'm only saying this in a a very, very small amount, in defense of someone like DeJoy. And, you know, here's a CEO type that's running a company. And the reality is he probably is accurate in saying he has no clue himself. I'm not, I'm not saying this is in fact the case, but often with CEOs, you know, they don't pay a lot of attention to uh, the details of stuff. Sometimes they do. And like in the case of Charles Keating, he was, he was directing all the Keating five activities. So he knew exactly what was going on. 
but you know, in the case of someone like the joy, you would have to be able to demonstrate, and perhaps there is the evidence to show that he personally kind of was involved in this effort. Uh, he says he was, and there wasn't a, a kind of an email trail or a whistleblower that could say, yes, Mr. DeJoy himself was involved in this. Uh, I wouldn't be shocked to find out that he didn't know because a lot of you know business types don't think they can be bothered. Uh, but the answer of that is always he should know, right? And in this case, we'll see if there is a record that shows he personally was involved and, you know, was made some of these decisions. So that's a matter of, again, that's a matter of fact that a thorough investigation could actually determine. That would be left to the state of North Carolina then? Based on the information so far public, it looks like most of this activity so far has been beyond the statute of five-year statute of limitations. Now, there's a separate question of whether or not he remains as postmaster general. That's a different question. It's not legal, but political. Thanks so much for being on the show, Meredith. That's Meredith McGee, Executive Director of Issue 1. The 2020 census has been a legal minefield, with one trip to the Supreme Court over the addition of a citizenship question, and with more than four cases now pending against the Trump administration over the census. Now a federal judge in California has ordered the Census Bureau to stop winding down operations until a hearing next week. Joining me is Leon Fresco, a partner at Holland and Knight. Tell us about Judge Lucy Coe's order. So Judge Lucy Coe issued a temporary injunction this weekend. She's in the Northern District of California. And there's two aspects of this census case. So this aspect is called the winding down aspect. She said that the winding down aspect of the census case, which means that the government wanted to stop counting the amount of people who hadn't applied for the census already using the online and other methods to enter the census. They were supposed to stop on October 30th, and instead it was stopping on September 30th. It got moved up a month. And in fact, people were already getting fired by the Census Bureau, and they were already getting wound down. So the court, Judge Coe, issued a temporary restraining order saying, stop doing that. Stop firing people. Stop winding this down and continue with whoever you have on staff counting people who haven't been responsive to the census like you were intending to do, which was going to be a deadline of October 30th. Did the October 30th deadline come about because of COVID-19? Was the end of September the original deadline? It was changed and then changed back? Correct. What actually happened was the original deadline was at the end of April, And because of COVID-19, it got moved to October. So everybody adjusted all their operations to moving it until October. And then suddenly in the middle of the summer in August, the Census Bureau said, no, we're actually changing this again. And we're winding this down and we're ending this on September 30th. But then they started winding it down immediately and they started firing people immediately. And so that was going to diminish the resources available to actually count people who hadn't responded to the census. And so the nature of these claims are, well, that's arbitrary and capricious for you to say, because of COVID-19, we needed this extra time until October, and now suddenly we don't need it. And there was no good reason given. It wasn't like there were certain metrics of counting that had been met. They simply just wound back the date. 
Is there any evidence as to why they wound back the date? Did an order come from above? Well, so there, the, one of the interesting aspects of the case is there's a whistleblower who talked to the court, and the court said that they have to go through a federal whistleblower process. So that's interesting if we find that out at some point later, what will happen with regard to that whistleblower. But in the meantime, the other issue that's very fascinating is that the only reason that they give is that the administration came to some determination that the census part couldn't be completed by December 31st, 2020, which was what they believe is their statutory deadline to produce apportionment counts. They said there's no way to do this if we collect past September 30th of 2020. And that wasn't something they were uncomfortable with when they made these extension of these deadlines. So it's unclear why they're suddenly uncomfortable with it now. And Judge Coe also pointed out some conflicting statements made by a top census official. Yes, correct. There were certainly serious questions there about the accuracy of the census data that were generated by the declaration of an individual named Albert Fontenot, who was the associate director for decennial census programs. He had originally declared that the lack of field staff would be a barrier and there wasn't a way to do this. But at the time, there was a May 26th webinar organized by the National Congress of American Indians where they've already said we passed the point where we could even meet the current legislative requirement of December 31st. We can't do that anymore. That was Tim Olson, the head of the field operation for the 2020 census. And so because he had said that in May, the idea that now we have to get this done by December 31st, there's no way. that That's already been said that that was going to be inaccurate. So the one reason given that we have to meet the December 31st deadline isn't a valid reason because that was already known in May that we weren't going to be able to meet that deadline. So is the challenge to the Trump administration not counting undocumented immigrants part of this lawsuit? Well, so there's two separate lawsuits, and those they're going on in parallel. And one of the lawsuits is about this issue of whether you can count undocumented individuals in the census. But the real basis for these claims that are being made at the moment in these lawsuits is that it was just arbitrary and capricious to have a deadline, change the deadline, and then change it backward again, because people had developed enough of a reliance interest in these deadlines that that shouldn't have been done at that point. I mean, it is being made as a sort of subtextual claim that, yes, there might be this intent that the bigger cities, which have more of these individuals, don't get counted. Experts have warned that shortcuts would lead to inaccurate census counts, missing the poor, the young, and minority groups, traditionally the hardest to count. Is there any evidence that that's true? Well, I think everybody who's in general fearful and hiding from law enforcement in general, because they know that at at the moment to their advantage that they be seen less than as opposed to being seen more, will be harder to count. And so the, the complication then becomes if your intent is to actually count every human being in the, in the United States in order to apportion this properly, the less resources you're putting toward that goal, you're going to get more people who want to be counted and less people who don't want to be counted. 
And so that would have some natural relationship to undocumented individuals. And that is the third count of the complaint that is done by the city of Los Angeles, the county of Los Angeles, and others filing this lawsuit. They're saying it is a pretext to exclude undocumented portions from the apportionment count. Uh, but again, you know, this, this wasn't the basis so far for the court's temporary injunction. The, the, the basis was that the justification given by the government doesn't match what they said previously. And because there was a deadline given in the past, they haven't given a good reason why they would change the deadline again. So what happens if the Census Bureau is not able to complete the census by December 31st? Well, I, I think the concern that this administration would have is that if it ran into late January, that if the president, President Trump was defeated, that Joe Biden could actually then set the count. And their belief was this count would be more disadvantageous to Republicans, I suppose, than the count that this president would set. That's sort of the theory that's undergirding these lawsuits, is that this would be the only possible, absent some explanation that is clear and provable, this explanation is the only explanation that that they can surmise for why all of this is happening. And there was a request to the Senate to extend the deadline beyond December 31st, and they never took that up. Correct, and that's one of the issues that's actually going to be under debate right now during this period right before the continuing resolution needs to pass on September 30th. And there is some belief that there is some bipartisan consensus here to move the census because, you know, there are states like Texas also that are large states that want everybody counted in Texas that are more red, you know, and same thing with Florida than just states like California or New York. So, it will be interesting to see if the Congress, as part of the continuing resolution, actually ends up extending these deadlines but not meeting these lawsuits. So tell us more about the second aspect of these lawsuits and where that stands. Right. Well, the second aspect is the issue that has now been argued in oral argument in New York and will be argued soon in California, which is can you actually exclude undocumented immigrants from the census? And so... That's the issue that is uh, being argued. And there's all kinds of peripheral issues there about whether you have to wait to do that until after to show that you've been damaged by not counting people or whether you can do it now preemptively. But it appears that the Second Circuit, where they had a three-judge panel with some district court and some Second Circuit, and that would go directly to the Supreme Court if they actually uh, banned the memo that the president wrote. That panel seems to have some skepticism of the government's argument here, and they seem to think that this policy is wrong to say that you can't count undocumented individuals and that the timing is fine now at the moment to be able to make this claim. You don't have to wait until later to show that you were harmed by the count that was subsequently done. And so because of that, uh, I, I can foresee that case getting to the Supreme Court relatively quickly. Who has the stronger argument at the Second Circuit as to whether or not you can count undocumented immigrants? Well, it seems as if the Second Circuit panel 
accepted the argument that it would be illegal and unconstitutional not to count undocumented immigrants from the census. We'll have to see. They seem to be having some struggle, perhaps, with is this the right time to make that argument, or do you make it after you see the formula and after you see the count so that you can better debate what was actually counted or not. But it seems like they were convinced in that argument, although we need to see the order to see, that at the end of the day, the the challenge could occur now and that there isn't unlimited power on the president to determine how to apportion these districts. And so it seems likely that we're going to be getting an order in the next week or two that says that this memo is illegal, and then that would be challenged to the Supreme Court. So now remind us, the Supreme Court has already ruled on the census once by a 5-4 to four vote. Remind us what was decided then. Right. The Supreme Court at that point invalidated the process in a 5-4 decision by which the Census Bureau tried to ask a citizenship question in the census because they said that that process was arbitrary and capricious and didn't follow the process by which you would insert such a question in the census. They didn't say, they didn't say one way or the other definitively what is the fate of whether you could ask such a citizenship question nor did they say whether it would be illegal or not to exclude undocumented individuals from the census. But nevertheless, that claim appears to be heading more squarely to a court that appears to have for sure four judges that seem to think that that's fine to exclude undocumented immigrants, four that seem to think it's not fine to exclude. And then we're going to be left to see what Justice Roberts will be able to come up with to, as he was the swing vote in the prior census case, to determine whether undocumented individuals can be counted in the census. There are more than half a dozen other lawsuits, you mentioned a few, that are percolating through the system. And so could there be conflicting decisions? There absolutely could be conflicting decisions. But the point is, as long as there's one court that is issuing either a temporary restraining order or a preliminary injunction, then and, and they issues it on a nationwide basis, that this means that the United States Department of Justice would have to go to the Supreme Court to get that undone. And so there's three bites of the apple that the plaintiffs are trying. They're trying in the District of Maryland, they're trying in the Southern District of New York, and they're trying in the Northern District of California. And they only have to be right once. And if they're right once, this will mean that that case will go to the Supreme Court. Who are the plaintiffs in these cases? Some are groups, some are cities, some are counties, some are states. And they're sort of interspersed by where these locations are. The New York case is the state of New York plus some localities. The the Northern District of California case has a lot of California-based localities, and the Maryland case has uh, more immigration group-type plaintiffs in it. Let's say Joe Biden wins the election, and the census had been completed, the information handed over by December 31st. Can there be litigation then to dispute the findings of the census? I mean, how would that even work out? Well, yes, technically, so let's say... Let's say that the census comes out during a time where Joe Biden is president and he says, I don't want any of this immigration-related stuff 
impacting the census in any way, shape, or form, you still could have litigation where the states that don't want undocumented individuals counted could sue and, and say that they shouldn't be counted because of apportionment reasons, that their apportionment is being negatively affected. That, you know, that wasn't filed in 2010 or in any other decade, but maybe this issue has percolated to such a powerful political issue that you might see that this time around. Thanks for being on the Bloomberg Law Show, Leon. That's Leon Fresco, a partner at Holland and Knight. The stakes are high in these cases. The census helps determine how $1.5 trillion in federal funding is distributed and how many congressional seats each state gets in apportionment. As of Saturday, more than 86% of households have been counted. More than 65% of households were counted from self-responses online, by mail, or by telephone. And 21% of households were counted by census takers who went to households that hadn't yet answered the questionnaire. And that's it for this edition of Bloomberg Law. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on iTunes, SoundCloud, or at Bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. I'm June Grosso. Thanks so much for listening. 